You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces The Glenn Show and all other shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them highly unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America, and even the world, is looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hello there, Ian. How are you? Hello, Glenn. How are you? I'm Hello. good. I'm good, and uh, great to see you. You look great, man. I must say, I got to get myself a suit like that one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as uh, well, I knew that I was going to see you, so I was dressed up. But I also uh, was part of a press conference earlier today to announce something called the 1776 Unites curriculum that ultimately let's, will let's be get into that but let me introduce this first this is glenn yeah. lowry this is the glenn show at bloggingheads.tv sponsored by uh, the watson institute for public and international affairs at brown university where i'm a professor and i'm with ian Rowe, who is a resident fellow at the american enterprise institute and formerly was the um would you call yourself president or director uh, I, I, I was the CEO, which which meant a, a public prep, which meant I worked for everybody else, which I which means I was accountable to children. Public prep uh, was a, is a very successful network of charter schools in New York City. Uh, Ian is a veteran of the uh, business of uh, educating young people uh, in an innovative way, uh, young people of color, young people disadvantaged, uh, and a big uh, proponent of charter schools and. You're now at uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, so you know, I, I actually had been a a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute while I was the CEO of Public Prep, and it's really, frankly, just a great platform to speak about education, the idea of upward mobility, free enterprise. These are the things, you know, as, as, I, as I have run schools and I'm now designing a new network of international baccalaureate high schools, I like the tandem of being at a think tank where I can uh, write research papers that we're going to talk about, one of which is just on closing the racial wealth gap. So that's important because it's important to get those ideas out to policymakers, to legislators, and it's important for me to be running schools, to actually be a practitioner so that the ideas that I'm putting forth aren't just theories or, or uh, you know, I, from the safety of the ivory tower, but that you're actually in the mix. And you can talk about real stories, particularly of low-income families who want the opportunity for their kids to have a better life. And so I want to be – so AEI is providing the ability for me to be able to step back do research, do presentations, while I also have the ability to design a new high school in the heart of the South Bronx that's going to demonstrate and utilize some of the strategies that we're putting forth. What is International Baccalaureate? So International Baccalaureate is a global curriculum. It's been around for decades. I'm interrupting you. I like words, so I want to be able to say this one. Say it again, please. The International Baccalaureate. uh, Baccalaureate. Baccalaureate. Okay. Is a, it's a curriculum that's been around for several decades. I mean, typically you find it in the province of very high-end private schools, uh, upper-middle-class uh, public schools. It's a very rigorous uh, curriculum that uses so, the Socratic method of engagement. Uh, there's now a component that is what's called the IB Diploma Program, or what's called the the IB Careers Program, which allows you to develop expertise within specific industries, such as computer science, uh, architecture, um, construction, uh, healthcare. So we will be creating one of the first high schools that is running this IB model in the heart of the South Bronx, in a, in a low-income community. And part of my goal is to democratize access 
to a world-class curriculum that people typically associate with, again, very high-end, predominantly white schools. But I'm, we are determined to show that that kind of uh, curriculum can be accessed by our kids with the highest of expectations. How would this curriculum differ from what a kid might encounter in a you know, ordinary uh, school, public or private for that matter? Well, you know, the traditional um, district school system. So first of all, it'll be in a charter. Um, so first of all, that so that so right off the bat, we have the ability to really augment it. So uh, so we'll have the core international baccalaureate curriculum, which I can talk about. In addition, uh, everything will be uh, organized around the four cardinal virtues. So courage, justice, temperance and wisdom. So those those. Uh, uh, ideas, those principles will be imbued throughout everything that we do. So much of the literature that is chosen will be characters who exemplify courage, who exemplify wisdom. Um, there'll be a lot of Socratic um, discussion. So it's not only about the curriculum, it's also about the mode of teaching. So, you know, you being a college professor, you're much more um, used to the idea of actually having much more participation on the part of students. Um, we want to bring that into a high school setting where imagine instead of the teacher just standing in front of, of uh, 20 or 30 students, it's kind of a circular um, uh, makeup where much of the discussion is between the students themselves, defending arguments, presenting evidence around a whole host of, of topics and in the case of the International Baccalaureate model, because we have both the careers pathway and the diploma pathway, students will be able to choose. Either the, the diploma pathway is much more designed to enter, when you graduate, to immediately enter a four-year college or university and do well there, or the IB careers pathway means that the last two years of high school, you'll have corporate internships in these industries that I just mentioned. And so you have the ability to immediately get a job if that's what you choose to do. Because even though there's a, a college for all mentality, generally, the vast majority of Americans don't have a college degree and not all, not everyone aspires to that. And so if there's an opportunity to get a fantastic education, which is what an IB careers program does, and have the ability to get a great job in architecture or computer science right out of school, you should have that opportunity. I just uh, got a long note from a friend of mine named Robert Lehrman. He's an economist in Washington, yeah. D.C., retired from American University, but still has an Urban Institute affiliation where I think he's a emeritus fellow, something like that. Robert Lehrman, you know who he is? I do. Because he's pushing apprenticeship uh, big time. He's saying, you know, let's get our kids ready to – you know, uh, those kids who are not going to follow a four-year college track, or they may go later in their life to get a college education, but they can learn a skill and uh, find themselves uh, placed in a in a professional occupational track uh, right away to develop their uh, their potential. There is there is wisdom uh, in that strategy, and the power is to make it a choice on the part of young people themselves. I mean, I went to Brooklyn Tech High School which is one of the specialized high schools in New York City. And Brooklyn Tech at the time, I think, had, I think, 14 different majors. And so I chose to major in electrical engineering uh, for my junior and senior years in high school. But there, there are other majors of architecture, um, technical drawing. There were some pretty amazing things. And some kids decided to go on to college. I mean, I went to go on to uh, Cornell um, uh, College of Engineering, but other students went straight into industry. And as long as it's a strong foundation and you have choice, then an apprenticeship can be an amazing way to begin your life. How is it that you find yourself uh, from an engineering background as an education entrepreneur, uh, which is what it is you seem to be doing now? Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. Many people ask me that. Uh, you know, I, I have had, I have had, uh, a really unbelievable, uh, career. And I think my engineering experience, both in high school and then at Cornell, uh, where I majored in computer science engineering, uh, just helped me, uh, frankly, be able to think about problems and to solve them in a deductive way. 
I'm fascinated by really complex challenges. I really am. And, um, and really studying causality. Why do things occur the way that they occur? Why have they occurred? Why have other interventions not um, worked? Or why, why have some interventions worked and they're not replicated? And so in college, if you're a computer science major and you're trying to tell a computer how to get to a certain outcome and there are certain obstacles, you, you literally have to think about the logic to get there. And so throughout my career, I've just been fascinated. So, you know, I, my first job out of college, I was at Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. You know, it was all about strategy and integrating technology into corporations. But I was doing um, a lot of mentoring in New York City public schools. You know, I was working with a lot of low-income kids that there, but for the grace of God go I, you know, they were just by virtue of their zip code, they were being stripped of opportunities, you know, either their zip code or their family structure or other challenges. And I just thought, gosh, there, there, this is a, this is a pretty big challenge. How do we, how do we really empower more young people to be successful regardless of their initial circumstance. And so I really started thinking about that problem. And frankly, it's been an animating concept for the rest of, for the, for my life since, because I left Anderson to go to business school to try to think about how I could take what I'd learned in the private sector and apply it to this challenge. So I went to Harvard Business School and then decided to do the crazy thing, went to work for Teach for America, joined Wendy Kopp in the very early days. Wait a minute, after an engineering degree and a... Uh, uh, Harvard Business School MBA. At Harvard, you went off to Teach for America. That Not only is that crazy, it sounds like it could impoverish your brother. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is... Um, when you get a Harvard Business School degree, or frankly, most degrees, for some people, it becomes a uh, constraint, right? You start to think, wow, I got a Harvard Business School. I guess I got to go to Wall Street. I, you know, I have to do that. Right. And for me, it actually was liberating because in my sense, I said, you know what? I always, I could always fall back. And so why not really try to pursue my passion and pursue this idea this animating idea of how do I create opportunity for millions of young people, regardless of circumstances in which they're born. And so I decided to do the crazy thing and went to work for a nonprofit organization. And okay. you know what? And, and there were scholarships. There were all these things that came through. So I wasn't completely broke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You don't look broke, <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, um, here's what the left-wing critic is going to say. You're a corporate type, Harvard business school. Um, Arthur Anderson or whatever you all call yourselves. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're a charter school type, you, which means you're a school choice type, which means you want to privatize and you want to, you know, open things up to competition and whatnot. You probably are a neoliberal. You're at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you haven't been anywhere near a teacher's union. You don't know what ordinary, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just suppose I made that argument. Uh, what would you say in response? Well, I would say come to, you know, come to the building that I just built, this 85,000 square foot building in the heart of the South Bronx, where we are now, where we open the first all boys public elementary school in the Bronx, where in this district, if you're a boy and you start ninth grade, four years later, only 2% graduate from high school ready for college. I know I've shared that statistic with you before, meaning that you start. So in 2015, there are about 2000 kids in district eight in the South Bronx. Four years later in 2019, 2% meaning that they either dropped out of high school starting in 2015, or they actually graduated, but still couldn't do uh, math or reading without remediation at the local community college. I lived that life for 10 years working with people in that community who wanted better options for their kids. That's not, that's not corporate type. That is trying to address one of the most fundamental challenges facing our country and we need new ideas. So, so, I, so I reject all the ideological stuff. I don't, I don't fall into anyone's category of liberal or conservative. And, you know, I've worked at MTV and um, major campaigns around uh, you, you, you name it. My, my, my bona fides on the left and my bona fides on the right. At the end of the day, all I care about is how do we 
animate the dreams and hopes of millions of young people of all races who just want a shot at the American dream? Like, how do we solve that complex challenge? Okay. Well, I'm with you. Uh, uh, Okay, so uh, you say uh, 1776 Unites has a curriculum. What is 1776 Unites? I should tell people, you and I are both uh, uh, colleagues of Robert Woodson, uh, the Woodson Center in uh, Washington, D.C., who has launched a project called 1776 Unites, which is in some ways a response to the New York Times 1619 project, but has its own energy and its own own raison d'etre in terms of a view of the world about how to expand opportunity for people of color, for descendants of slaves, for black people in the United States. But you're talking now about a curriculum, and and yeah. I'm just wondering what that looks like and how that how that gets disseminated and and what what your idea is there. Yeah, it's a great question. So as you mentioned, the 1619 project, because in some ways, the 1776 project and 1776 unites was created as a as a, uh, you know in response to, and it's because 1619. You know, if you read it, it ha- it makes some pretty bold claims. It says that quote. America's founding ideals were false when they were written, end quote. Um, this is from the lead essay of the, the special essay. issue of the New York Times magazine that launched the 1619 Project at the New York Times, authored by Nicole Hannah-Jones, subsequently awarded a Pulitzer Prize for commentary uh, for her shepherding of this uh, 1619 project and for that lead essay. America's founding ideals were false when they were written. It took black people to make them true or words to that effect. Yes. And that uh, white supremacy is embedded in the DNA of the country. So these are pretty bold claims. And Bob Woodson, as you said, gathered primarily black scholars to come together and say, perhaps there's an alternative view of the history of our country. And we've written essays, and I think it's been very powerful. But then 1619 actually partnered with the Pulitzer Center to take their existing essays and translate translate that into curricula. And that curricula has now been distributed to almost 5,000 schools across the country in places like Chicago, Rochester, Buffalo, I think Newark. These are some of the lowest performing schools academically in the country. And these, some of these schools are literally adopting the 1619 curriculum, even though it's been discredited by some of the most um, respected historians in the country. And so the one thing 1619 has done, it certainly has uncovered a strong desire, a strong thirst for more stories about the African-American experience in the United States. For that, it should be given credit. So rather than just continue to be a critic of the 1619 Project, Bob Woodson, I, and others said, well, why not create a more compelling and complete alternative to demonstrate not just the legacy of slavery in the United States, but the legacy of excellence, the stories of resiliency, of inventiveness, of of innovation that the Black community did exercise even in the face of unbelievable adversity. It's those omissions that, frankly, are the things that are most frustrating around the 1619 Project, in addition to its historical inaccuracies, but it's the stories of omission. So the 1776 Unites curriculum, which we launched today, and I'll let you, you know, it's going to be a K-12 through curriculum, but I'll give you two examples of what we launched today. There's going to be a look-back component that tells the stories of largely unknown African-Americans, past and present, who actually embraced the founding ideals of free enterprise, hard work, entrepreneurship, faith, family, as the tools through which both individuals and as a group move from prosecution or persecution to prosperity. So folks like Biddy Mason, who was born a slave and died a millionaire and a great philanthropist, or Elijah McCoy, who again enslaved and yet became an engineer and inventor, 
whose products were so superior for the train industry that there were knockoffs created. And when engineers went to buy their products, they saw the knockoffs and said, whoa, 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 whoa I don't want those. I want the real McCoy. The real McCoy. Okay. You know, uh, this is great stuff that kids uh, need to know. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, but, okay, let me, let me uh, push back here. I'm going to try to put my Nicole Hannah-Jones hat on. Okay. So, first of all, what is the 1619 Project? It is a retelling of the American story centering slavery. What's wrong with that? Secondly, you say historical inaccuracy. Well, uh, people can tell different narratives in different ways. It's true. Claims were made, for example, specifically the claim that the one of the primary motivations for those who fought the Revolutionary War was to protect the institution of slavery from threats they thought that, that, that was oh, their correction, by the way. Yeah, the originally yeah. was that was the reason they they oh, they, they, oh, they added they correct. added one they added one of cricket, and then many prominent historians say no 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 that vastly overstates the significance of of that uh, that's really not a, a valid claim interpretive claim about what was motivating the uh, the generation who fought the Revolutionary War. But okay, let's put such quibbles aside. Basically, there is a contest over the narrative about how we tell the story of the country. There is. You say you're not partisan. You say you're not uh, ideological. But as a matter of fact, the narrative that you want to affirm, uh, land of opportunity, uh, African-American entrepreneurship, uh, you want to cherry pick a certain number of success stories when the vast bulk of people were being oppressed by the boot of uh, systemic racism, the story that you want to tell is also an ideological narrative. Yours is a is a uh, you know uh, a city on a hill, uh, American exceptionalism, uh, bootstrap, uh, Horatio Alger narrative, and ours is a Howard Zinn, uh, People's History of the America, skeptical about all the hype, uh, haven't drunk the Kool Aid, uh, patriotism wise uh, narrative. Uh, who's to say that your narrative is quote unquote? True. Glenn, this is so powerful that you say that because we as black people in this country should be having that debate. What we, we, we should be talking about what is the right orientation that, by the way, we should be teaching our children. Do we live in an America that is solely defined by the legacy of slavery that, as you say, has had its boots on our neck, that's been suffocating us? Is that the only is that the only interpretation of America? And then there's another view, which is that America does have a legacy of slavery. America does have an oppressive past. And yet, even in the face of that oppression, these aren't just cherry picking. There are tens of millions of people historically and present who are embracing the founding ideals of our country and achieving success. The country is not where it wants to be, nor where it needs to be, and by the way, for people of all races. But that is a healthy debate. It's, it's not, and, and I think that, and I think, again, in some ways, 1619 has opened the door, and hopefully they want to be intellectually honest. I've actually, uh, Bob Woodson and I actually had a, a discussion today. What if we actually presented the opportunity to have a national debate? between black leaders, so that not, in some ways, right now the conversation is dominated by white elites that are trying to decide what's best for black people. Why not have some black leaders who represent both camps that you just described actually engage in a real live debate? What is it that you're proposing? So for example, the folks that you just said who are proposing, you know, boots have been on our neck for hundreds of years, their primary proposal seems to be reparations for black descendants of slaves. And as I understand it, what they interpret that to mean is that the federal government, in order to atone for its past, would start sending checks for about $150,000 per black descendant of slave. If you can prove that, you know, so if you're a Nigerian American or a Jamaican American, you wouldn't get a check. But for any black American descendants of slaves, the federal government would just send you a check for about one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. Cumulatively, I think it's about thirteen or fourteen trillion dollars. I believe that's what the people who are advocating for the position is that that that's what they're arguing for. Let's have that debate. This other side is saying we want to 
we want to increase opportunity and access. We want people to be agents of their own uplift. This isn't about lifting yourself up by the bootstraps or Horatio Alger. That's not the way it works. That's a myth. Individuals need what I call mediating institutions, families, faith, local community organizations, schools that are the, the entities that shape the character of our individual, of our young people. No, no one can make it on their own. And so this is a healthy debate. Is the federal government suddenly throwing $150,000 to every black, or again, some segment of black Americans? Is that the solution? Or is a solution of empowerment and agency the strategy through which a whole group of people can move from persecution to prosperity? Okay. Uh, excuse me for interrupting, but I, we got the point and I got to, you know, I got to do this. I got to push back. And I actually agree with you. Okay. I'll just state that at the outset, but here's what people are going to say. Uh, they're going to say uh, it's a red herring checks for $150,000. Maybe it doesn't have to be checks. Maybe it's investing in HBCUs. Maybe it's baby bonds, so it's accounts that are uh, at the Fed for people. Well, baby uh, bonds are not racially baby, no, they're, they're they're racial baby bonds. So you endow people with an account. At the, I mean, I'm just saying there are many different forms that reparations could take. A check is only one form. That would be one thing that people would be saying. Another thing they would be saying is, I agree with you, they could say, about uh, uplift, about intermediate institutions, about values, about whatever. But I just want the debt to be paid. A debt is a debt, regardless of the um, whether or not it's the best policy to solve inequality. If it's uh, due to people because of uh, the uh, uh, confiscate, the plundering is the word of their ancestors, then it's due to them, uh, period, full stop. So, um, you know, the uh, uh, argument about reparations is to some degree independent from the argument about uh, racial uplift or whatever is just a question of settling accounts. It's, it's true. And, and again, the beauty of the country that we live in, you know, these founding ideals that were so false when they were written, is that ideas can be discussed and debated. So, sure, let, I, I think it's actually a very rich discussion. There is no people in the United States living today that have been enslaved, and yet there are folks arguing for reparations for the Black descendants of slaves, and as you say, the form of the reparations could take diff different forms, but much of this discussion seems to be actual cash payments to black descendants of slaves. Um, I, th I think many people would support ideas such as investing in HBCUs, which, by the way, the current administration seems to be doing that. Um, so I, I think those kind of ideas, which are focused on opportunity and access, as opposed to you're a victim so of some distant land, and so you need to uh, get a check from the federal government. Those are very different. Those are very different interventions. And in fact, I would probably offer that many of the people who are arguing for opportunity and access would welcome ideas. So, for example, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, just decided to allocate, I think, about two percent of their cash on hand to move it from their current banking facilities to black owned banks. The reason that's interesting to me. That's a lot of money. It's about a hundred million dollars from what I understand. For those banks, that's going to make a big difference to their balance sheet. And guess what? Banks don't typically just give money to people because you're a victim. What they typically ask for is if you want a loan to start a business or have an idea, you have to demonstrate a level of credit worthiness. You've got to demonstrate a business plan. You've got to put forth an idea, an entrepreneurial idea for something that you want to create. That's what we're talking about. The idea of earned success. So Harlem Capital is a new uh, venture firm in Manhattan started by two black Harvard Business School student graduates who are looking to build a new organization that changes the face of entrepreneurship. So they're going to be investing in a thousand entrepreneurs, black um, minority entrepreneurs and women over the next, I think, five years or so. Yes, that's, that's what we're talking about. We do need to close the racial wealth gap. The question is how, and I think it's a, I think it would be great to have a debate. I mean, on a, on a, a radio show, Nicole Hannah Jones and talking about reparations and uh, 
uh, and the idea of cash payments. She said, quote, look, if people get the, their government check and they want to spend it at the Gucci store, that's yeah, fine. Their money, let them spend it. It's their money. Let them spend it. They spend it any way they want. That's what she says. Yeah, that, that's what she said. And again, let's have that debate. I, I think it's she clearly has she's won a Pulitzer. So she's put that idea out there. Let's discuss is spending money at white owned institutions like Gucci going to get us to close the racial wealth gap as opposed to ideas that stimulate entrepreneurship and ownership? Well, let me try this critique. I've been trying to give voice to a critique from the left. I'm going to give a critique from the right now. Why are we formulating any of this conversation in terms of race? Why are we compart? Here's the problem with reparations. So goes this argument. The problem with reparations is that it takes the country and it divides it up into uh, subgroups based upon something that really ought not to have any significance whatsoever. Um, a lot of people suffered historical depredations of one kind or another. There were sweatshops. There was labor exploitation. There was, you know, immigrants can point to the conditions under which their ancestors had to live in tenements and uh, work for a pittance and deal with all kinds of uh, exploitation and whatnot. Uh, everybody's got a claim to make. The Native Americans uh, would be at the head of the queue Absolutely. of making claims. The sum of all claims that people could make about historical mistreatment would require payments that exceed the amount of income that's available to spread amongst everybody. We're one country here, so goes this argument, Americans. We are all citizens, equal before the law. If you argue with the reparations people by saying, no, here's a better way to help black people, you're basically buying into their racialized vision of uh, what the country should look like. I, I should have every bit as much right to ask black people, what do they have to offer to the country as I have to uh, uh, sit and listen to entertain their claims about what the country owes to them? Why shouldn't African-Americans take their history, our history, and put it on the table on behalf of creating a decent society for everybody, rather than arguing about this or that strategy for how it is that black people can get paid. Well, that's a very compelling argument, Glenn, and I'm actually going to take that to heart because the, the ideas that I'm putting forth about entrepreneurship, ultimate ownership, the fundamental values around resiliency, courage, free enterprise, those are not in the province of white people. They're not only in the province of black people. They're not in the province of Asian people. They're the province of humanity. And so you're right. When I, when I, so I'm, I'm responding because we started the conversation focused on the strategies, particularly as related to black people. I've just written an analysis of how to close the racial wealth gap. So I'm, so I'm starting with that, that frame, but you're absolutely right. None of these ideas that I'm saying that I'm advocating for should be exclusively in the realm of racial identification. In the case of Reed Hastings, he was making a specific um, effort for how his company was dealing with what his interpretation is of access, lack of access to capital within the black community. And so he said, this is my specific intervention to transfer some of my existing dollars to black-owned businesses. But, With the but, idea that those banks would then make loans to black businesses uh, from the funds provided. Correct, correct. And the reason I like that as a general model, it's just not a giveaway. It's, it's, it's unto itself generative, right? It's $100 million of capital, which, as you just said, will make a huge difference to these banks, and typically because Black-owned institutions are more community-based within lower-income communities, likely the people coming for access to that capital will be small business owners who are looking for capital, who are looking for loans, and that's generative. There has been no group of people that's been persecuted that hasn't achieved prosperity without huge investments in launching new businesses, in entrepreneurship and ultimate ownership of their own destiny. And you're right. That's not, you're absolutely right. And I should really think about how I portray these ideas because it's not just about black people. It's just that in the current moment, there are a lot of people, people looking for ideas about how to advance the interests of the black community. 
And what do you say to the left-wing critics of capitalism, to the people who say that all of your argument about venture capital, about entrepreneurship and starting business and whatnot is kind of nested. It's nested within a system which is problematic at its core, driven by profit, driven by greed, associated with inequality. Uh, Capital in the 21st century, Piketty's book and so forth, uh, concentrated wealth, wealth taken over our politics, uh, the uh, lack of strong unions, the lack of social democratic political coalitions that can get the government to pay minimum wage, uh, adequate health care, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, if you think that black people can get to equality by playing the capitalist game in the same way that everybody else is playing it, uh, you're making a mistake. So that argument would go. Yeah. Well, again, I'd love to hear what the compelling alternative is. But what, one, one thing that's always interesting to me is when I look at folks who are typically making those kinds of arguments, whether it be a Nicole Hannah-Jones or Ta-Nehisi Coates, like, those people are doing quite well financially and, and benefiting from the capitalist system. But, th- but there's that aside. I mean, capitalism rests on individuals who are developing ideas for business, commerce. So this may be a long-winded answer, but let's start with improving our K-12 system so that we have more folks who have a strong foundation of knowledge, learning, the habits of mind, where they can go out and build businesses, they can uh, work in institutions, they can generate wealth for their families. These These problems weren't just created out of nowhere. And yes, there's a legacy of slavery for which there's some remnants of discrimination in this country, but to fault the structure of capitalism without looking at the, the ingredients that are normally necessary for a capitalist system to be successful, such as strong families, a strong education system, let's start there. If we can focus on those two elements, I think we'd see a much more equitable uh, uh, um, society because more people would have opportunity and access. And for me, that's why I'm running schools. If you have kids where only 2% in the South Bronx are four years later graduating from high school ready for college, believe me, they're not going to succeed in a capitalist system. We will have inequity. What else would you expect, right? And so so I, I actually appreciate the the concerns with where we are from a wealth distribution perspective. But back to the, your original question, complex challenges. Can we really understand why these issues exist in the first place? Is it all remnants of a legacy of discrimination? Or are there other factors, most notably a dysfunctional K-12 educational system in most rural and urban communities across the country, and, and not enough strong families supporting those children? You know, then you're then you're back on my turf of how we deploy and support in those particular institutions to then make a capitalist structure more functional and equitable for all. Let's talk about the family for a minute, Um, because I see different dimensions to your I see a pedagogic thing. How do we do education? I see an economic thing. Let's encourage entrepreneurship and initiative. I see a cultural thing. You talk about intermediate institutions. You talk about the church and about values. I like this idea about the virtues that would be the core of your educational framework. And you keep invoking families. And, uh, you know, we're both African-American. We know that two and three kids who are born to a black woman in this country, even to this day, are born to a woman without a husband. We know the uh, single parent hood and so forth. The black family is not exactly a healthy state, I think a person could say. What can you do to make any difference in the way in which families amongst African Americans uh, are organized and, and conduct their, uh, their intimate affairs? I mean, Glenn, it is one of the most entrenched challenges, by the way, that not only faces the black community, but increasingly the white community. I mean, the non-marital, I particularly focus on young mothers, women 24 and under, because I think we are in a different society right now where a 38-year-old woman who's worked on Wall Street decides to have a child, that's 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 a different, that's just a different reality. But if you're 24 and under and you have a child, you have many challenges 
that are similar to what we used to think about teen teen mothers, right? So in the black community, if you're a woman 24 and under in 2018, 91% of those women had, uh, who had a baby in 2018, that was a non-marital birth. In the white community, it's 61%. So, so, so the numbers in aggregate, there are actually more white babies being born to young uh, white mothers than there are total numbers of blacks, but the ratios are just extraordinary. And 41% of those same young unmarried mothers in 2018 were having between their second through their eighth child, right? So this idea of so multiple partner fertility. So, so what do you think the likelihood is of kids who are born into that situation having equal odds of success? It doesn't mean that they're not guaranteed, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't, they may not, you know, they, they somehow may be able to overcome their circumstance, but the challenges that we're putting forth and for both the parent and the child are enormous. So you ask, what can we do about that? Right. So you, uh, so you ask, what can we do about that? So first of all, we have to talk about it and acknowledge it. If you listen to most of the debate right now, particularly as it relates to, to the black community, and we're talking about structural racism and all the barriers, you almost never hear a discussion around, well, those things are, those things can be true that there's structural barriers around race, but what are the conditions that many children are being born into that make them more vulnerable to being victims of those structural barriers? And are there things that we can do to change that situation? So one of the things I talk about a lot in schools, there is data from the Brookings Institution and others that says that if you get your high school degree, uh, get a full-time job of any, time, of any type, just you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and if you have a child, get married first. If you follow that series of steps, the data shows that 98% of the time you avoid poverty. It's not 100%, so it's no guarantee, but that's certainly the kind of information that many young people in low-income, rural, and urban communities don't know. So perhaps we should be teaching that in schools as a non-prescriptive. Okay, if you teach that, please indulge me because... I was trained in statistics uh, as a PhD in economics. And I just have to say this, okay? The fact that if I compare people who do those things that you said, uh, complete high school, uh, marry, work, work, work first, then the the children work, complete high school, work, marry, and have children, then the chance of poverty is very low, does not imply that if I take a given individual and I, instead of dropping out of high school or not marrying or not working first, I do those things that for that individual, the outcome would change. The reason it doesn't imply that is that people may be different with respect to other traits than the ones that you're focusing on, work, marriage, and schooling. They may differ with respect to uh, ambition, uh, uh, resilience, uh, uh, ability to postpone gratification, uh, uh, a, a sense of filial piety. Uh, there are all these things that they could differ. People who have particular traits along these other dimensions may do the things that you're talking about. They may complete school. They may wait before they get uh, uh, children to marry, et cetera, et cetera. And it'll look as if it was the doing of those things that caused the low poverty outcome, but it, it was in fact a, what we would say is the heterogeneity of the population. You know, the, so correlation, not causation. It would be the observation, and this is not an argument against teaching kids uh, to marry before they have children, against teaching them to complete their educations, and against teaching them to value work. This is saying that, you know. Entrenched poverty is a very deep and complicated problem and won't necessarily yield to formulas and nostrums of the sort that you were just giving voice to. I say that with respect because I'm really being a devil's advocate here to a certain degree and giving you an opportunity to respond to that kind of critique. Yeah, so so A, you know, taken with full respect and appreciated, there is no silver bullet. 
And it is very true that someone could follow all of those steps and still not be successful. I mean, how many of us know children of married, two-parent, household, stable, where the kids uh, ran into all sorts of issues, right? And we've had children of single parents who've grown up to be president, right? So life is not a guarantee. The question is, what do we teach our children, by the way, before they have made decisions, right? The whole idea is, this isn't a value judgment. In fact, one of the things I recommend for people who are considering teaching this content in schools is before you engage the kids, you actually teach the adults. You say, you, you, uh, you chose our school because you thought we were going to give your child the best information that they could make good decisions about their life. And so we're telling you up front, we're not teaching this information about this pathway of decision-making to make you feel bad parent. If you may not have um, uh, chosen this path in your own life, but we feel that this is information your kids need to know. There's no guarantee. And it's being taught in a non-prescriptive way because we're going to show here's the probability of success with this series of decisions. Here's the probability of success with this series of decisions. And then ultimately you decide you are the master of your own destiny. And so I just feel it's very important that this information exists. There is no one who can say this is causal, right? No one. If there are people who are saying that, then they're, they're, they're jumping the evidence, right? All we can say to young people is based on the known information by doing lots of regressive analysis of people who've changed their economic station in life, these are the factors which seem to make a difference. And by the way, Raj Chetty just did you know research of 40 million records testing the concept of upward mobility and he found the rates of marriage and father presence were two of the biggest factors within a given community. So again, just a small corrective. He did indeed find that with respect to the composition of the neighborhoods or the communities from which yes. the people came, not with respect to the composition of the personal households from which they came. It is interesting. It's better if they came up in a community in which a lot of the families were intact but not necessarily if their specific family was intact. No, no, it's, it's a very interesting wrinkle to the evidence. But frankly, if it's so good that they're, if, if it's so important that the community have more strong fathers and more married families, then, hey, let's make, <laughs> why don't I be one of those, why don't make my yeah. household one of those that has such, you no know. No way to get there except one family at a time, so to speak. Well, that's true. Exactly. And okay, so. What about the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it, it's very important because I don't want to be dogmatic on these things. And I, and I think it's very important to be very evidence-based. And so often I ask, well, what's the alternative? You know, what is it that we should be teaching kids? And frankly, you know, if you, if, you know, I run schools, elementary and middle school, and now I'm going to be launching a network of high schools. So what is it our responsibility as adults to teach children about the strategies that seem to be related, seem to be correlated to human flourishing. Do we just, do we just step back and say, no, no, we're not going to share this information because somehow we have some, I don't know, moral fear. And, I, and to me, it's the moral opposite. We have an obligation to tell kids this information. Okay, I was going to ask the question about isn't this uh, aren't these white values? Isn't uh, this? Uh, no, that's uh, enough of that. I mean, it's just nonsense. Know, Victorian, uh, you know, kind of conventional nineteen fifties Amy Wax kind of. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, I mean, to some degree, it is, but that's not doesn't make it white. I mean, what's so interesting is that these characteristics. I mean, the Museum of African American History put out that. Um, a directive a few maybe a month ago about defining whiteness and whiteness is nuclear family, you know, hard work, uh, being on time, you know, somehow these are white characteristics, right? And so clearly the racist cor corollary is that if you're black, you're not one of these things. And it's hard to tell the woke from the racist these days. Seriously. 
So, no, that is not a white idea of human flourishing, the idea of a strong family. And by the way, another interesting thing that is emerging is a lot of brain science of what happens to very, very young children, ages 0, 1, 2, in those very early stages of life. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that very young single mothers who are having children where you have increased levels of domestic violence, poverty, other issues, have adverse impact on very young children. And so you wonder, so why is it that we have so many predominantly black children in pre-K being suspended and having discipline issues? Is it because of the racist teachers Maybe there's some evidence of implicit bias by the teachers, you know, the people who've ab- dedicated their lives to helping kids. Or maybe some of that is related to these dysfunctional home conditions. And so we just have to have be honest. If we really want to self- solve complex challenges, we have to be honest in thinking about new types of solutions and why those challenges exist in the first place. You know, I've said this on a number of occasions with respect to racial disparities in school discipline. I didn't know it was already manifest in preschool, uh, but the Department of Education keeps statistics on, you know, K through 12, and you see much higher suspension rates for African-American youngsters, and that had given some people uh, back during the Obama administration the sense that the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education needed to crack down on school districts to make sure they equalize suspension rates because the presumption was that black kids were being discriminated against by the school systems in the process of discipline. And I thought that may be, and if so, it was a bad thing that the civil rights people should get after, but it could also be maybe there were behavioral differences between the kids brought in from their homes, given the differences in the organization of the homes, the resources available, the amount of stress on parents, the amount of, you know, uh, deviant behavior that might be going on, criminal behavior, things of this kind. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I don't say it's so, but I say if it were so and it were to show up in terms of kids acting out in school and we didn't take that minor in the canary, uh, canary in the mind, you know, as an indication of a deeper dysfunction that could be addressed through social work and intervention and family supports and so on like that. If we, if we attribute it all to systemic racism and then just uh, walked away from it, we'd be doing such a grave disservice uh, well, not, not, well, so, I mean, everything you just said is right. So there could be more than one explanation because when you focus on these um, Unitarian uh, causalities, so in pre-K or first grade, if there's a disproportionate number of black kids that are being suspended, it must be because of the racist teacher. And once you start with that solution, I'm sorry, that causality then you've narrowed your solutions because now what do you need to do? I need to drive the racism out of the teachers. So that's where you get anti-bias training. And suddenly you have now a whole cottage industry, which is breaking up your faculty to say, you white teacher, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, you're biased against kids of color in your classroom. And that's the total part of the story. You're You're culturally incompetent. You don't know how to deal with those kids and they just have a different way of expressing themselves and, you know, et cetera. So, you know, my thing is, look, again, I run schools and there's truth in many of these things. You cannot be a school leader in a rural or urban community in this country today and not acknowledge the challenges that are coming from many of the home environments for which our kids are in. It doesn't mean we have bad parents. Good. I mean, I, I, you know, my parents dreamed of having their kids have what they need to achieve the American dream. Right. But that doesn't negate the fact that our, many of our kids are coming from very challenging environments, which contributes to some of the conditions that we see manifest itself in schools today. We need to be honest about that. Okay, let me maybe in closing ask you about the church, because that's been mentioned on a number of occasions in this conversation as a part of the intermediate institutional framework that supports the large project of bringing up children from infancy into a productive adulthood. Uh, You want to talk about that for me? What role do you see religion playing? It seems a bit passe. I mean, I was I, I won't go on long, but let me just say this. I was struck a few weeks ago in late August when uh, Reverend Al Sharpton organized a march on Washington uh, in memory of the 1963 march. So it would have been, 
I don't know, the 57th anniversary. And people came there and they talked and they said, no justice, no peace. And speeches were given and uh, people killed by black people killed by police were remembered. And, you know, the struggle Black Lives Matter and so forth was given evidence of. But I didn't really see a whole lot of religion uh, of the sort that I would have seen in 1963 when King, a minister and uh, the head of the Southern uh, uh, Christian Leadership Conference and company uh, were leading the civil rights movement. Uh, The prominent role of the black church in African-American civic life and political life seems to have significantly diminished over time. So I'm just wondering here in the year 2020, what role uh, a person concerned about the development of human potential amongst African-Americans does uh, uh, one see the church playing? Glenn, I mean, I'm so glad to speak to you. I mean, these are, these are, so the role of the church and we desperately need the voice and moral authority of faith leaders right now, because faith leaders would be able to do things that you and I could not. And I'm going to give, about to give a very hard example. So in this terrible incident that happened a couple of weeks ago in Wisconsin, this gentleman, uh, Blake, yeah. he was shot seven times. You know, no one knows the full story. But clearly, seven, if, if one just looks at the uh, surface, that seems excessive. And if it's ultimately found that this person is a victim of police brutality or excessive force, then that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And faith leaders can come out very forcefully and say, this is wrong. It doesn't matter a rape. This, this is, doesn't matter. This is wrong to humanity, right? But the other thing a faith leader can do is critique the other side of the equation which is in this particular case, I understand, Mr. Blake, the reason the police were called in the first place was that he had some kind of warrant or accusations of of sexual abuse and that the young ladies that were involved in this were calling. That's the kind of behavior that, again, none of that ever justifies an illegal police action. Let's be clear about that. But a faith leader can essentially stand on both sides and call behavior out, whether it's the illegal acts of a police officer or the antisocial behavior that increases the conditions that you will be victim to those kind of situations in the first place. Very few of us in our society today have the ability to make that argument today without being canceled, vilified, being just shut out. But that's where the faith leaders could play a huge role right now. Because we, we need so almost like a moral arbiter who has trust and integrity to say we're not blaming the victim, but we are calling out that there are behaviors that we as a human society have to agree to. And when that is violated, there are people, namely faith leaders, who have the ability to call that out. Do you remember when uh, this minister at the funeral of Aretha Franklin gave a eulogy? Yes. What's his name? Do you recall? I don't remember his name, but I remember he was attacked by... Viciously attacked. He was viciously attacked. A lot of it in black Twitter and the the black uh, uh, blogosphere uh, of people saying that he had no right to use the occasion of Aretha Franklin's funeral to, to give his social sermon about black families and, you know, a woman alone not being able to raise a a boy into manhood and all that kind of stuff. I wish I could think of his name. We could uh, look it up. But But I I raise that because I I wonder how receptive uh, the larger African-American public audience would be to a message rooted in faith in the year 2020 along those more or less conventional moralistic lines, you know, pull your socks up, you know, uh, keep your knees closed, the kind of thing like that. Yeah, again, I, I, I don't go to the, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. What we're saying is that there is an important role for mediating institutions like the church, like strong families. And unfortunately, probably a lot of other faith leaders saw what happened to this particular pastor and said, whoa, I don't want that to happen to me. So they've silenced themselves. There's a great article um, out now. The issue isn't cancel culture. The issue is compliance culture. And basically, this writer argues that for every person that's been publicly canceled, 
there are probably thousands of people who are now saying, I'm not even going to go there. And I think that's what's happening, frankly, within not only the black faith leadership, but faith leaders probably across the board who've lost the courage, who've lost the moral courage to come out at the very moment we as a society need them. Okay. Well, uh, it's a very important message. Uh, 1776 Unites has a curriculum pushing yeah. back against the influence on uh, K-12 through kids of the 1619 Project, which has thousands of uh, local school districts adopting their uh, materials. Uh, this yes. curriculum emphasizes what's possible for black people to achieve in the examples of African-American achievement here in this great country. Um, and uh, we'll see what, 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 what's going to happen. Uh, this is, yeah. And if folks want access to the curriculum, it's free. 1776unites.com. It's all free. Focused on black excellence, reject victimhood culture, and celebrate the stories of African-Americans past and present who have embraced the ideals of our country. They're not cherry-picking. They're examples of millions and millions and millions of black people who have managed to achieve in this country, even despite the odds. We're not where we want to be yet, but it's these kinds of stories that we think will be the aspiring and inspirational stories that motivate young people of all races to become masters of their own destiny. 1776unites.com. Thanks a lot, Ian. Glenn, thank you. Okay, see you soon. See you soon. Bye.